Hello, my fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to Nice Chats from the Geology Podcast Network. I'm Dr. B, and in each episode, I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of natural problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we will have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geosciences, I, with the help of our guest and occasionally co-host Sylvia, will take care of feeding you all the information you need in a casual and fun environment. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Catherine Goodenough, a principal geologist at the British Geological Survey. She researches critical material resources and particularly today's theme, which is rare earth elements, uh, in addition to lithium as well. I wonder why rare earth elements are so important and how can we search for it? Let's find out. So this is our first episode of the new season of Nice Chats, uh, and I'm happy to say that for this episode, I'm also joined by producer and occasional co-host, Silvia Volante. Hi, Sisi. Hello, hello, Dr. B. I'm pleased to be back recording Nice Chat with a new whole season of exciting themes and interesting guests. I'm very happy to be able to host this first episode of Nice Chats with our first special guest, Catherine, who I finally have the pleasure to meet. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to our show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, like Sylvia mentioned, you know, this is actually the first time that we all meet in person, if you can actually call a Zoom meeting in person, you know, <laughs> at least it's not a longer email. <laughs> but, um, but you know, Catherine, I actually have been following your work for some time uh, now, especially on Twitter. I really like uh, following you on Twitter. So I'm really excited to learn from you today. Uh, but before we get down to business, uh, here in this podcast, we have a tradition, which is to break the ice with a little game. Okay. And today we're going to play a fan favorite. It's a game that we call Sample, Curate or Hammer. Now, this is a play on the traditional kiss, marry, kill game. Basically, I'm going to give you three options. And then from these three options, you have to choose one that you would sample in the field. So you chuck it in your backpack and you bring it back to the lab. And then another one that is so special that you want to curate to your collection and keep forever. Like uh, I have an obicular granite from Western Australia that was gifted to me. And that one has a special place in my shelf and my heart. And finally, the last option is a sample that you wouldn't mind hammering away and destroying in order to get to the good bits. So basically, it's a list from least to most favorite, with the least favorite being a hammer, the medium being sample, and then the most favorite curate. You ready? Mm -hmm. All right. So... Which would you sample, hammer, or curate? Coastline with cliffs, pebble beaches, or fine sand beaches? 
Oh, <laughs> that's a tricky one. <laughs> I'm going to um, hammer the pebble beach because who likes walking along a pebble beach anyway? It's always too hard work. Um, I might sample the fine sand because I think that might be interesting to try and, you know, get some uh, interesting minerals out of it. And I'm going to curate the coastline with cliffs because I do like a big cliff. Oh, nice. <laughs> you have some good one in Scotland. <laughs> Indeed, we do. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the way you rank them, but um, we don't get a lot of pebble beaches in Brazil. And the first time that I saw one was in Nice in France. And uh, I think you're always uh, drawn to things that you don't really see very often because I was, I was really like, you know, impressed with it. And I really enjoyed the sound of the pebbles clinging against each other when the wave came in. So that's really nice. But I mean, we have to choose one. I remember being an undergraduate and we would be asked to walk for what seemed at the time like miles along pebble beaches to get to the outcrops on our field trips. And pebble beaches, they just slide away underneath you. It's incredibly hard work when you don't know where you're going. So I remember that I always used to think, I don't like pebble beaches. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay, so which one would you sample, hammer or curate? Light rare earth elements, heavy rare earth elements or medium? Earth elements. Now that one's probably easier. You're going to hammer the light rare earth elements because they're actually not that useful to anybody. Uh, you're going to sample the medium rare earth elements because they include neodymium and that's the most useful of the, of the rare earth elements. And you're going to curate the heavy rare earth elements because they are the ones that actually are quite rare. Okay, very nice. Um, which would you sample, hammer, or curate? Rain, wind, or snowy weather during field work? I would hammer the rain. Who wants the rain? I, I live in Scotland. There's always quite a lot of rain, and yeah, nobody wants the rain. I would, uh, I would sample the 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 wind. I I don't mind wind. Wind is a is okay. It doesn't stop mm -hmm. you. Working. And then we curate the snowy weather. I love the snow. That's nice. Um, I would add a fourth option here, which I would not not just hammer, but nuke, which are flies. Flies in the field are my worst nightmare, honestly. In Scotland, we have the midges. Oh yeah. Yeah, you would you would destroy them with everything you could find in your path. Yeah, Sylvia actually did some recent work in uh, in Scotland. Yeah, I think uh, the worst thing was actually rain because being wet in the field work is just uh, the worst. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't have snow though, but um... have have you ever had snow in a field work, Catherine? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes, of course. And snow is great because it picks out all the details in in the rocks that you're looking at. So. Obviously, if it's really thick snow, that's not so good. But if you yeah. have just a bit, it's great. Cool. Yeah, I actually have already, as, as surprising as it sounds, you know, because I studied in Brazil and I then did my PhD in Australia. Uh, and I studied those two countries during my studies. 
so you wouldn't think that I have experience doing uh, field work with snow, but um, when I was studying in France, we actually did the excursion that took us to the top of the Vosges. And uh, it was it was hilarious because it was a very nice day. And when we were in the, you know, in the, um, the plane, um, it was nice weather. Everyone had T-shirt and, and, uh, and shorts. And then when we took it, when we went up to the mountain, it was snowing. Nobody was prepared for it. It was terrible, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, at least it's a, it's a story to tell. Which would you sample, hammer or curate? Conferences online, in person, or hybrid? Now, this this really is a good question. Um, I and I actually I'm going to find that really hard to answer because you know they all have such advantages and also disadvantages. So online conferences are brilliant because people from all over the world can attend, but it means that we can't meet each other and talk in person. And obviously vice versa for in-person conferences, we can all get together and that's lovely. Um, but there's a lot of people who maybe can't afford to attend in-person conferences or who maybe don't want to deal with being away from home for so long or even carbon footprint concerns. Hybrid conferences, I guess I'd curate the hybrid conference if I could, if it's done well, a hybrid conference is, is ideal. Uh, so I, I think I'd probably have to curate the hybrid conference and probably sample the other two because both of them are as good as each other in different ways yeah i think that in the past two years online conferences have evolved so much that uh, i really really enjoy them now and i yeah. think that hybrid probably will follow the same path i hope will follow the same path but right now is the the weakest link in my opinion like we haven't figured out yet how to make them you know work well i think no i think that's right i think it's right and we have to remember, even if we want to go back to conferences, that the benefits of having people joining online are huge. Oh boy, I sure have missed our fun games. It's so good to be back and Catherine sure made it a lot of fun. Uh, for this season of Nice Chats, we are planning on having episodes released monthly. So follow the podcast wherever you're listening to it to get a notification every time a new episode is released. Uh, the reason why we're doing actually monthly episodes instead of every other week is just because me and Sylvia and all of our collaborators from the GPN are struggling so much with time to produce the podcast. And this brings me to my next point. If you like this podcast and would like to be involved with it, we would really love to have more people join the team. Contact us via our email, nicechats at gmail.com. Uh, and if you want to help, but you can't see yourself joining the team, you can still do so by giving us a nice review and rating our show at five stars. Okay, Katrin, let's get to the whole reason we're here today. And my first question to you is, what are rare earth elements? So the rare earth elements are chiefly the lanthanides. That's the 15 elements that sit across the bottom of the periodic table from lanthanum to lutetium. And sometimes we also include scandium and yttrium in what we call the rare earth elements. 
So it's a whole group of elements. And the really interesting thing about them is that they simply aren't rare. They're called rare earth elements because uh, when Swedish chemists originally identified that they existed, really only a couple of hundred years ago, they found it very difficult to isolate the different elements from each other. Hence, they called them rare earths. But really, they're not that rare at all. Certainly not all of them. Oh, that's so interesting. I had no idea about that. That's cool. And and uh, it makes sense that, they, like, I always imagine that field of the rare elements in the periodic table as like a drawer, you know? So you get to that particular spot and then all of a sudden you open a drawer. So it kind of like makes sense that they ha have struggled so much to separate them because they behave so similarly, right? That's it. They have very similar properties in many ways. And so even nowadays, it's actually quite difficult to, to separate all of them when we're processing them to try and obtain the individual metals. Um, and why are geoscientists so interested in finding reserves of these rare earth elements? Well, the, the thing that's really important about the rare earth elements is that some of them are very strongly magnetic, uh, particularly neodymium. And so we use neodymium in high strength magnets. And those magnets are used in a range of technologies. They're in the hard drive in, the, in your laptop, for example. But really importantly, they're in the motors of some electric vehicles, and they're also in the motors of wind turbines. And so right now, you know, we're moving to decarbonize our economy. We want to drive electric vehicles, use renewable energy. And to do that, we really need the rare earth elements. They do have lots of other uses. There'll be rare earth elements in the screen of the computer that I'm talking to you on now, in TV screens, in laser pointers. They're in different types of glass. They're even in ceramics. They're used in polishing. A whole range of different uses, but most importantly, those high strength magnets that you just can't make without the rare earth elements. And they're used in motors for so many things that we need. Right. And... Um... In which kind of rocks can we find these rare elements in amounts that would make them um, exploitable? We can find them in quite a range of different types of rocks, actually. But um, so we find them in um, in deposits that form by high temperature processes, say igneous processes, and in particular, we find them in the alkaline igneous rocks and in carbonatites. So really weird and wonderful igneous rocks with very strange chemistries, particularly carbonatites, which are formed from magmas that were rich in carbonate rather than silica. And those are some of the main sources of the rare earth elements, but they're not the only possible sources. An ordinary granite will contain some minerals that have rare earth elements in. And if that granite is eroded away, those minerals are very resistant. They can fall into a river and be rolled as grains of sand down to the sea and eventually build up as mineral sand. So if you go to a beach, we just talked about sand beaches. If you go to a beach and look at the little uh, layers of black sand that you see on many beaches, those layers of black sand are made up of heavy minerals. And some of those heavy minerals will contain rare earth elements. And if you have enough, of those heavy minerals, then you can actually have mineable deposits. And some of the world's rare earth elements really do come from mineral sands around coastlines today. And the other right. you can find them, you can find them in zones that have been tropically weathered. 
because when you have tropical weathering and rocks break down to soil, the rare earth elements try and cling on as long as possible to the minerals in the soil. And so again, you can find the rare earth elements in those weathered zones. So really a whole range of different settings you can find them in. Cool, yeah, it makes, uh, makes sense that, uh, that they stay behind uh, when uh, I, I didn't consider the weathering as a possible, you know, form of enrichment of these elements. That's very interesting. Is there any particular time in Earth's history where we find, you know, more reserves of Earth elements compared to Earth's evolution? So I would say that there's not a particular time in, in Earth's history when they were formed. They formed several times through Earth's history. But one of the important things about alkaline igneous rocks and carbonatites is that those tend to form in certain settings. They can form pretty much just after a mountain building event, a collisional event, or they can form a bit later as a continent starts to extend. But what that means is that if we look through Earth history, we have times when there were supercontinents coming together, parts of that continent colliding to make a supercontinent, and we have times when they were splitting up. And it's more likely that rare earth element deposits would have formed towards the end of supercontinent formation and as they started to split up. So that would be most common. So there's several times in earth history when you're likely to find rare earth element deposits being formed. And then of course, we find the deposits like the mineral sands being formed really at the present time as well. Um, and uh, if the listener is looking for a refresher on supercontinent and supercontinent cycles, please go back and listen to our second ever episode of Nice Chats with uh, Dr. Erin Martin. And she did a wonderful job explaining to us uh, supercontinents. See, uh, the, the knowledge we get uh, listening to this podcast is always going to come back to help us in other subjects. That's, uh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Is there any particular part of the world where we would find where elements more than others? Um... So I think a lot of people would say, if you asked them that question, they would say, oh, well, of course, rare earth elements are all found in China. And it is very true that most of the world's mines of the rare earth elements are in China. China produces a huge percentage of our rare earth elements, uh, mostly from carbonatites, uh, but also from the types of uh, weathered zones that we've been talking about. But the fact that China is very good at producing and mining the rare earth elements doesn't tell you anything about where the rare earth element deposits actually are. Because in fact, if you look at, um, look at a map and on our website, the British Geological Survey website, we actually have a very nice map of rare earth element deposits. Um, you can see that they occur all over the world. And that's because, as I said, carbonatites and alkaline igneous rocks have formed through Earth history. Um, and so you can find them in that tectonic setting at different ages. Uh, but mineral sands as well, you can form, um, you can find them around coastlines all over the world, and indeed even on ancient coastlines in some cases. So uh, yes, the rare earth element deposits are actually spread all around the world. And there are examples currently being mined in China, in Australia, in the USA, uh, and smaller amounts in, in Russia and in uh, parts of Africa, uh, in Brazil. 
but there are deposits being explored on every continent. Uh, and indeed, in Europe, we even have quite a few potential rare earth element deposits, even though we don't have mining at the moment. Um, do you think that there are also deposits that just haven't been found because maybe we're not looking for them the right way? Or do you think that the reason why maybe we have the impression, you know, that all the deposits are in China is purely this economical and kind of process, you know, related thing? So, yes. Uh, so the reason why China is mining the rare earth elements so much is because they um, invested in it at a time when the market was very small. They developed the technology. Uh, they developed the skill base. So it's entirely in intentional from China that they wanted to make sure that they had this opportunity to supply the world with rare earth elements. And they've done very well at it. But we know, we do know about a huge number of other deposits around the world. I'm sure there are more to find, absolutely certain, because the rare earth elements have not been that widely explored before this century, really. But we still know about a huge number of other deposits and, and the problems, the reasons why we aren't mining those deposits are mostly to do with economic reasons, and, and permitting reasons around making sure mm -hmm. that they can be mined in the best possible way with the least environmental impact, the best social impact, that kind of thing. That all has to come together to develop a mine. And for the rare earth elements, that has proved quite challenging in countries outside of China. I see. And I think that we have a very exciting opportunity here. And this goes hand in hand with what I discussed previously with uh, Rebecca Paisley. Uh, in a previous episode as well, where we discuss the fact that it's not just, you know, the, the role of geosciences, obviously, is to find these, um, these uh, elements that are important for this technology that will lead to the energy revolution. But it's not just that, it's also focusing on how to make the mining activity as sustainable as possible in the process as well. And we have a very good opportunity to do that with these like new uh, minerals of interest. That's right. And I always say, you know, we need mining for the energy transition. We, we can't supply these minerals by recycling alone. We just haven't used enough of them uh, to be able to recycle what we need for the, the demand that's coming. So we need to mine them. And we just need to make sure we do that mining in the absolute best way possible. Yeah, actually about the um, mineral waste and so on, I was uh, the other day, I just uh, followed only part of the meeting or conference that uh, was at the, um, uh, that you advertised on Twitter, where basically they were actually talking about that, about uh, how to try to do a green mining and um, and also how to let's say try to um, to reuse all the mineral waste for example there was a there was a woman that was talking about uh, from uni queensland that was talking about uh, um yeah all the queen mm. uh, bunch of queensland deposits in particular but uh, yeah she's fantastic anita she's really anita yeah yeah, she yeah was, exactly really cool yeah. really cool work sorry sorry i was just gonna say understanding mining and mineral waste and knowing how we can actually deal with it and manage it in the 
history possible is such an important part of that making mining palatable to the wider public. Yeah, and we need to assure the public of our good intentions as well, because geology has such a bad bad breath. <laughs> and it's such a shame, isn't it? It shouldn't have that bad rap at all, but it does. Yeah, hopefully our podcast does a little bit, you know, in uh, in a helping uh, make us look like uh, we're on this side of earth you know <laughs> and not against it uh you mentioned uh, several deposits throughout the world uh have you visited uh, a few of them i have but i haven't visited any of the active mines because most of those are in china and are quite difficult to get to but i have visited um deposits in in many countries um in russia actually in the past um i've been to places in sweden where it might be possible to um, to mine the rare earth elements uh, as a byproduct of producing phosphate actually for fertilizer. Um, and I've visited deposits in a number of places uh, in Africa, uh, including in Namibia um, and in Madagascar. And in fact, I've also been to a rare earth element deposit in Brazil. Oh, really? Uh, where? Uh, the Cerro Verde deposit, not that far from Brasilia. Oh, okay, I don't, yeah, I'm not familiar with it, actually. The deposit that I'm most interested in at the moment, uh, because we are looking to, um, to, to do some scientific drilling at that deposit, is in Malawi. And it's, so it's in part of, it's one of the older parts of the East African Rift, and it's a carbonatite in Malawi uh, that we're hoping to be able to do a lot more work on soon. Um, yeah, so you're mentioning, you're, you were mentioning uh, your work before about uh, you know in in uh, in africa and i was just wondering if you and your colleagues at the survey if you had like built partnership with african institutions or researchers yes i think it's this is a really important question because it's so critical if we're working in africa to work with colleagues there uh it's really important to avoid parachute science where researchers from Europe, just arrive in Africa, go walking around, collect some samples and leave again. You know, we need to make sure that we are always working with local researchers. So at BGS, what we try and do most importantly is to work with the local geological survey where we can. Uh, for example, recently I've been working with the geological surveys in Ghana and in Sierra Leone. Uh, also, of course, with local universities uh, where that's possible. And, um, and sometimes with the companies as well that are exploring in the area. And yes, we, we find that BGS often has contacts in, in geological surveys that go back some time because we've worked with so many surveys over the years. And so uh, we find that we are often welcomed when we come to visit and, and want to work with them. And it's fantastic. And we all gain so much from working together and we learn so much from each other. Oh, that's that's very interesting and it's nice to hear because it's um it's definitely a very important um issue that we deal with uh, in 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 science is this uh, concept of of parachute research just for our listeners that might not be familiar with it would you be able to explain to us what it is so i think parachute science is literally the idea that a scientist parachutes into a country without knowing anybody or working with anybody there. And of course, as geologists, 
all we need to do is go out and often collect some samples. For example, with all the modern satellite images and everything, in theory, at least, we can just hire a car, drive to where we want to work, collect our samples, take some photographs and go away again. But that way we don't involve local researchers. Um, we don't learn from all of their experience. Uh, we don't allow them the opportunity to maybe uh, learn from what we might be doing as well. And that's crazy. So, yes, parachute science is somebody literally dropping in, doing their work without any contact with anyone else and leaving again. And we don't want to do that. Yeah, and especially because uh, we have been discussing a lot in this episode, our role to benefit, to benefit society in the form of contributing to you know, energy revolution. But another way that we can contribute to um, our society is by including countries that um, don't have maybe as much opportunity as we do to do research in our studies and you know try to better the uh, the science capabilities of these uh, of these countries right that's exactly right and i think the thing is that virtually every african country that i've worked in there've been some really good geologists there often with brilliant experience of actually doing the exploration for minerals on the ground you know often much better experience than than i have in that sort of area but they haven't had the chance to work with, for example, all the facilities that might be available to us. So uh, there's just an awful lot for us all to learn from each other. And that's ideal. But if you didn't do that and didn't work with local geologists, you would always lose out. Yeah, I find that uh, interesting because not only within geologists among themselves, but um, in my previous experience doing field work in um, not so developed areas, I also learned so much just from local the local population about kind of you know the local uh, relief or the the fauna or they always know how to find outcrops for example and it's the kind of knowledge that I might not really get from higher education. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. You always want to make sure that you're working with the people who know the land that you're working on as best as possible. Yeah, for sure. So for our next segment, uh, we like to ask always the same three questions at the end of every episode. These are questions which are a bit more personal and they are designed to make each guest a bit more familiar to the listener. They also allow us to compare experiences and opinions across all geoscience research fields. And the first question is, how did you first decide to become a geoscientist? I decided to become a, a geoscientist when I was about 14 years old. And it's because I was good at science at school. I enjoyed doing science, but labs weren't always just for me. I, uh, I liked being outdoors. Yeah, I really enjoyed being outdoors, climbing hills, that kind of thing, not just sitting in a lab. And, um, and I thought, well, how can I combine this? And someone said to me, have you heard of geology? And well, that was it really. Once I realized that there was a science that you could do, but that involved spending a lot of time outdoors, I was hooked. 
And um, and it was a very good decision because um, that was quite a long while ago now, the late 1980s, and here I am still doing geology. Yeah, and one of the references in your field, so... <laughs> um... What are some of the specifics of the research that you are conducting at present? So I have to admit that my research right now is not on the rare earth elements. Uh, what we're working on at the moment is actually resources of lithium. And lithium is really important because it goes into the batteries of, it, of uh, electric vehicles. But we're looking at igneous rocks there as well, um, igneous rocks called pegmatites, and trying to understand um, the source of the lithium, how it gets into those magmas, and then as those pegmatites cool and crystallize, trying to understand what happens to the lithium. And there's a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences between lithium deposits and rare earth element deposits. So studying the two is really useful in terms of just understanding what's going on. Very interesting. Um, and finally, what do you enjoy doing when you are not geosciencing? Well, I hate to say it, but one of the things I really enjoy doing is climbing hills that might involve looking at rocks along the way. <laughs> so, yeah, I, my um, interests are mostly outdoors. I like hill walking. I like mountain biking. I like running very slowly. I like skiing. <laughs> um, I also very much like food and wine, which is probably why the running is very slow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're preaching to the choir here because... Um... As an Italian, I think that Sylvia would uh, really endorse the cheese and wine part of the answer. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So um, just going on a little side note, which is your favorite kind of wine from like which country? Oh, <laughs> that's a difficult one. My favorite kind of wine. I have spent more time tasting wine in France than anywhere else. And I really like a good Sauvignon Blanc from the Loire Valley uh, or a nice red from the Rhone Valley. Uh, but in Italy, I am very partial to a Chianti. Oh man, my favorite, uh, one of oh, my yes. favorites from Italy. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I like, I must confess to liking those kinds of wine, indeed. Good, good balance, question. let's see. <laughs> Uh, Catherine, um, when I contacted you, I used the contact form from the British Geological Survey, and I got a very quick response and was very a very efficient way to get in contact with you. If, uh, if some of our listeners, for some reason, want to get in contact with you and uh, need to, to talk to you, is that the best way to reach you? That is indeed the best way to reach me. The only thing I will say is that I'm not always quite that efficient at answering emails, but I will always try to answer eventually. Yeah, that's what I thought was a, a very interesting approach that the survey has, is that they'll actually have someone else have a look at your email before forwarding it to you, if I understand it correctly, which is great because uh, it really helps with researchers that might not have, you know, they, they want to answer to you, but maybe they have other priorities and things like that. So, yeah, I really thought that was an interesting approach. So we'll add to the show notes that uh, this link where you can contact not only Catherine, but all the, the researchers from the British survey. 
And then um, you can also follow her uh, science on Twitter, right? You're on Twitter. I am indeed on Twitter, at KM Goodenough. Yeah, and she always posts very interesting things about uh, her work and research, some uh, interesting um, you know, research topics and all kind of stuff. Uh, so, Catherine, on that note, thank you so much for this uh, lovely chat that we had. I learned uh, uh, a lot of, of things, uh, especially the, the reason why uh, they are called rare earth elements. So, yeah, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much, Catherine. That was very interesting. Good. No, you're, you're most welcome. In the next episode, I'm chatting with a good mate from back when I was studying at Curtin about geologic mapping. It will be great, really. This podcast is brought to you by the Geology Podcast Network. The GPN is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. Follow Traveling Geologist on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologist.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And that includes Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Done. We can stop recording now. <laughs>